Uh, this morning we're starting uh, a new sermon series. So last Sunday uh, we finished our study of the book of First Peter. And for the next five weeks, we're going to be camping out in the verses that Elaine just read for us in Acts chapter 2. It's a description of what we find the early church doing. And so the goal for us in this series, in the next five weeks, is, is to go deeper in our understanding of what it means for us to be the kind of church that I believe God wants us to be. You know, there's, there's a lot of different notions about church. You, every single person that came here today has some notion about church, about what it means to be the church, about what it means to participate in church. Every single one of us walked in here with some concept of what church is. But the question I want to put before us in this series is, how does the Bible depict it? How do the scriptures describe what it means to be the people of God together as the church? What do we find true of the earliest believers in Jesus? How were they doing church to put it in a common way? What does the New Testament invite us? How does it invite us to conceive of and to participate in this idea of church? We, we want to be a church that's faithful to how the New Testament uh, describes and invites us to be the people of God. We want to take our cues from, from the scriptures and, and not necessarily from modern culture or, or, or even from tradition. And here's why I think this matters. It matters because I really believe that the Bible teaches this. It matters because the, the church is God's plan A for advancing his kingdom in the world. The church is God's plan A for how his kingdom is coming in the world. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 says this. These are common verses. I want to key in on one little phrase he, he works in there that we maybe breeze past sometimes. He says, now to him who is able to do above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're familiar with these verses. They describe the power of God to do more than we could even think to ask or even imagine. But what Paul is saying here is that the way God works his power and manifests his glory in the world is through the church. It's in the church. I'm convinced that there is not a more important organization in the world than the local church. Before Jesus left earth, he commissioned his disciples to go into all the world making disciples of every people group, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that he commanded. Now, let's stop for just a minute and consider how this actually plays out in the book of Acts. Right? So you have the Gospels, which is the story of Jesus. We have four different stories of Jesus and then kind of part two, so we have the acts of Jesus in the gospel, and then we have the acts of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter two, we have the account of Pentecost. It comes just before the verses we just read. And so let me just summarize it for us. The, the, 
The early believers are gathered together in a room and they're praying and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, the one that God had promised. And it's the time of Pentecost. And so pilgrims from all over Israel had come to Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And, and, and while they're gathered together for that festival, the Spirit falls in power. And the disciples begin to proclaim the mighty acts of God. And they're proclaiming it in the, the, the languages of the people who would come from all these different areas. And this crowd begins to form because this crazy phenomenon is happening. And they're going, what's going on? And, and so this crowd forms and Peter stands up and Peter begins to preach the gospel. He begins to explain what is happening. And he begins to tell them about Jesus. And at the end of Peter's sermon... It says this, we're going to pick up in Acts 2.37. It says, when they heard this, that being the crowd, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. This depicts the formation of the first New Testament church. Luke tells us that those who believed the gospel message were baptized. And then notice those last three words. He says, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. That added language is critical. Added to who? Added to, to what? Well, added to this group of disciples. They... When they believed in Jesus, they didn't just become individual followers of Jesus. They became a band of believers. And this is how I would begin to try to define what a church is. A church is a group of baptized believers in Jesus who belong to one another. Church is not a day of the week. It's not a time slot. It's not a building or simply where you attend corporate worship. Church is not even a loose collection of believers. A church is a group of Christians who are united together by faith and mission. It's a group of people who have been brought together by the Holy Spirit and now belong to one another. And as the story continues in Acts, we see this pattern repeated. Local churches begin to form all over the place. As the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, what we find is that this was the strategy. As, as the apostle Paul carries his mission to the world, this is his method. He walks into a city. He goes to the synagogue first to look for Jews. He preaches the gospel to Jewish believers and God-fearers. And then he turns and he goes to Gentiles. But the goal is never simply individual believers in Jesus. In every town that Paul goes to, what ends up happening is he gets those who believe together and he forms a church. The aim is always local churches. It's to unite them together in faith and mission. And if we go back to Acts 2, what we notice that in our text is that immediately after these new believers are added to the group, Luke tells us in, in verse 42 that we just read, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. I think that word devoted is an important word. They devoted themselves. The early church was marked by devotion. That word is proskartoreo. And, and, 
and it means to occupy oneself diligently with something. It, it communicates this idea of holding fast or clinging to something or to continually be in something. And the way it's constructed here in Acts 2.42, it's, it's stressing the ongoing nature of this activity. That the early church was marked by constantly being together. Church for these earliest followers of Jesus, it wasn't a peripheral commitment. It wasn't something that they attended occasionally or participated in casually. It, it wasn't just one spoke on the wheel of their lives. Like it was the hub. It was the thing. It was the central organizing reality. They were devoted. I wonder if that could be said of you. Could the descriptors diligently occupied with and continually in and holding fast to be used to describe your relationship with the local church. I believe the Lord wants to invite us to go deeper in our love for and commitment to the local church. Not because God will love us more if we do, not because God needs you to do that. But because your sister in Christ does. And your unbelieving neighbor does. And because you do. The church is God's plan A. Not only for how his kingdom will advance into the world, but how his kingdom will advance in you. To the extent that we live into what we find here in Acts chapter 2 and in the rest of the New Testament, I believe to that degree we will experience the power of God in and through our lives. And so this is what we're going to press into for the next several weeks together. What does it look like for us to grow as a church in becoming a devoted community? We find here in Acts 2, 2 42 through 47, a description of, of how the early church was devoting themselves together. Their, their shared life took shape around certain practices. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of these commitments that they made with one another. Acts 2, 42 tells us that they devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. As the time drew near for, for Jesus to suffer and die, he, he began to warn his disciples that he would soon be leaving them. And so he began to encourage them that when he went away, he wasn't going to leave them alone. That he was going to send a helper who he calls the spirit of truth to guide them and to help them as they carry on the mission. Listen to Jesus' words here in John 14 through 16. He says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he will remind you of everything I've told you. When the, Holy, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will, take, he will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. When the counselor comes, the one I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will also testify because you have been with me from the beginning. What, what Jesus is telling the disciples is that when he leaves, the Spirit is going to come. And the Spirit's going to remind them of all that he taught them so that they can carry on his work in the world. And at Pentecost, this promise was fulfilled. 
The Spirit falls in power. The apostles begin to testify, but it's not a one-time deal. After this, the disciples continue to testify about Jesus. And, And so one of the early practices of the church was to come together regularly to listen to the apostles preach and teach. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, eventually, they began to write their teachings down. They began to record their stories of Jesus. They began to write letters of instruction to local congregations on how to faithfully follow Jesus. And these writings began to get circulated. They would pass them from one church to another church to read and to study. And eventually, all of these letters got compiled together and became what we now refer to as the New Testament. The Apostle Peter summarizes in 2 Peter chapter 1 that the disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus who prophesied about him under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He says in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, he says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so these writings of the apostles were believed to be more than writings. They were believed to be prophecies inspired by the Spirit of God. And we still have these teachings. We call them Holy Scripture. And so this is the first point. The primary way that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching is by valuing the Scriptures. The apostles' teaching is the Bible. And so as a church, we are people of the book. As we devote ourselves to this book in particular because we believe that this book is more than a book. We believe it to be the very word of God. The author of Hebrews testifies that the word of God is living and active, effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Karl Barth once said this. He said, I've read many books, but the Bible reads me. It's a living book, breathed out by God himself. That's why Charles Spurgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. We want to be a church that lives in the Bible. One way we aim to do this is through a regular diet of of preaching and teaching and Bible study. We just finished 19 weeks in 1 Peter. After this series, we're going to jump into the book of Jonah for four weeks. And then, Lord willing, we're going to spend pretty much most of next year going through the gospel of Matthew. We're committed to preaching the word. Paul exhorted Timothy. He said, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in kingdom. He couldn't heighten this anymore. He's like, hey, I'm going to charge you and put this as high as I can put it. Jesus is coming back soon, so preach the word, Timothy. He says to Timothy elsewhere, he says, give your attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Be committed to them. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul was really passionate about Timothy preaching and teaching the word of God. This week we are launching men's and women's Bible studies to go deeper into the word because we want to center ourselves on the scriptures. It's not too late to jump in on one of these. 
We want as many people as possible to be getting into the word. This is what it means for us to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. But let's press further. Because a devotion to the apostles' teaching is more than a devotion to the scriptures. It's a commitment to a certain way of reading the scriptures. As we devote ourselves to the scriptures, we want to make sure that we're reading it the way that the apostles show us to read it. You know, the Pharisees were also devoted to the scriptures. And yet somehow in their reading of the scriptures, they totally missed Jesus. Listen to John 5.39. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. And yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you spend all day reading the scriptures and you miss the big E on the eye chart. You miss the main thing. You know, you can read the Bible the wrong way. You can read the scriptures and completely miss the point. When we look at the teaching of the apostles, what we find is an example of how we should read and interpret the scriptures. Peter actually models this in the sermon he preaches at Pentecost. He, he demonstrates that this outpouring of the spirit, this phenomenon that's happening is actually prophesied in Joel chapter two, and it's tied to the arrival of Jesus. He's saying what's happening was predicted by Joel and fulfilled through Jesus. He quotes Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to show that these Psalms were actually passages about Christ. They were about the Messiah. When David said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, he wasn't talking about himself. David was, was talking about the Messiah. David's body's in a tomb that you can still visit. No, he was talking about the greater David that was coming. When David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, David was prophesying about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. David was talking about Jesus. Peter looks back and begins to read the Old Testament. He's like, this is amazing. Jesus is everywhere. He's in the Psalms. He's in the writings. He's in the prophets. He's in the Tanakh. He's everywhere. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Maybe... You've watched the Kentucky Derby before. This only became a big deal to me when I lived in Louisville. Shout out to Noah and Haley. You guys know. The, 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 the Kentucky Derby was lost on, on me until I lived in Louisville, and I realized, like, this is a big deal, right? I don't know if you've ever watched the Kentucky Derby, but it's, like, the most exciting two minutes in sports. But once you've watched it, you can't watch it the same way again, right? You can only watch it objectively one time because you don't know the outcome. But once you've seen the race, what happens? What does ESPN do? They kind of put a circle around that horse, right? And as soon as they leave the gates, you follow that horse because you know who wins. You watch the whole race differently once you know the outcome. Friends, can I just tell you that we know the winning horse? The one who comes from the seed of Eve to crush the head of the serpent? We know who that is. The one from Abraham's line that brings a blessing to the whole world? We, we know who that is. 
The one that's a prophet like unto Moses who delivers the word of God in fullness to his people. The one who comes from David's lineage, a a servant king who lives in covenant with Yahweh and leads the people in righteousness and faithfulness. The one from Isaiah who is anointed with the spirit from on high to proclaim liberty to the captive and to set the prisoner free. The suffering servant who bears the iniquity of his people and by whose stripes we are healed. The one in Micah who loves mercy and deals justly and walks humbly with his God. Once you've zeroed in on on Jesus. You can't read your Bible the same. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of every longing, of every promise, every hope in the Old Testament. It's all about him. Let me offer you another illustration to maybe help some of us who are slow this morning. Have, have you ever seen, because some of y'all, I got one amen. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate that. We're trying, brother. We're trying. You know, Brandon Reddick comes and preaches and you guys start talking. Get his wife Connie to come back and give me an amen. Have you ever seen one of those art pieces that's an optical illusion where it's really two pictures in one? Like if you look at it from one angle, it's, it's one image. And if you look at it from another angle, it's, it's another image. You guys ever seen those? Or if you look at it in the negative space, it's one thing. And you look at it in the positive space and it's, it's another thing. You know, it's like a duck in this direction and a rabbit in this direction. (laughs) You know, what's maddening is when you can only see one. And you're staring at it and you're staring at it and you're like, why can't I see the other image? But once your brain recognizes that pattern, it's like a switch flips. And suddenly you're like, whoa, there it is. It comes into focus. This is what happened for the apostles after Jesus' resurrection. I know this is my favorite passage that I go to like every third week in here. But in Luke 24, Jesus has that conversation with those disciples. And he begins to explain to them how all of this was necessary. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the things concerning himself. What's Jesus doing? He's giving the disciples a way to read the whole Bible. And he's saying, the whole thing's about me. You can't miss it. It's in Moses. It's in the writings. It's in the prophets. I'm everywhere. And when when the apostles began to understand that Jesus was the one who it was all about, suddenly everything came into focus for them. It switched. They they saw the image. And they began to read the Bible with a Christ-centered lens. Friends, listen to me. Jesus is the cipher that unlocks the true meaning of the Bible. You cannot truly understand it unless you're finding him. He wrote it. It's about him. And so listen to me. This is critical for us. As we try to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, it is not enough to read the Bible and glean moral principles out of it. The Bible is not a book of Aesop's fables on steroids. That is not what it's about. You have to look for Christ. You, you got to find Jesus. Tim, Tim Keller asked this question. He says, what is the Bible really about? Is it basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David? Or is it about him, the one who really took on the only giants that can really kill us? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. When we read our Bibles this way, we begin to see that the primary message of the whole story 
is salvation by grace through faith. It's one big story about God's redemption, God's salvation, God's grace that we lay hold of simply by faith. And so this leads me to my last point, which is that devotion to the apostles' teaching means keeping the gospel central. The core message of the apostles was the gospel of Jesus Christ. They declared the good news of Jesus. The apostle Paul to the Corinthians, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Paul saying, my whole message to you Corinthians was Christ. Later he says in the same letter, for I passed on to you as of most importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The central message of the apostles was the gospel. And so to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is to be a people who center our lives on the gospel. Now, maybe you hear that and you think to yourself, now, wait a minute, Paul. Didn't you give moral and ethical instructions to the churches? Like, didn't you teach them how to treat one another? And didn't you call them to holy living? And didn't you give instructions for church order? I mean, the gospel was a big part of your message, but it wasn't your only message. How do you think Paul would respond to that? Here's what I think he'd tell you. Pay attention to how I give my moral and ethical instruction. Pay attention to how I give my moral and ethical instruction. Paul's instruction is always rooted in the gospel. Let me show you. Let me give you a few examples. In, in the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is inviting the Corinthian believers to give generously for the collection for the church in Jerusalem. There were, there were many poor believers in Jerusalem. There was a need, there was a food shortage, there was a need among those believers. And so as Paul traveled to the different churches that he helped plant, he, he would ask them to give so that he could take that money to the church in Jerusalem. Now Paul could have just come out and said, hey, you guys need to be generous. To be a Christian means to be generous. It's not how Paul does it. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, let me remind you of the generosity of Jesus. That though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that you might become rich in him. Let me remind you of the gospel, brothers and sisters, that generosity is rooted in the generosity of Christ, that he sacrificed everything, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he loosed his clutches on heaven and all that came with it so that he could robe himself in flesh. He emptied himself and became impoverished and became a slave for us, to serve us. Okay, we got our eyes on Jesus. Okay, what does it look like for us to now live in the pattern of Christ's sacrifice and generosity? Let me give you another example. There's an entire book of scripture written to a slave master named Philemon. Philemon had a, a slave run away named Onesimus. Onesimus runs away in the providence of God and finds Paul and becomes a Christian. Paul leads him to faith. And Paul writes a letter, puts it in the hands of Onesimus and says, you need to go back to Philemon. Now, Paul could have told Philemon 
hey, slavery's bad, and you shouldn't have Onesimus as a slave anymore. But Paul does something more subversive and powerful than that. Paul says, hey, Philemon, Onesimus has become a Christian. He's your brother in Christ. No longer treat him as a slave. Treat him as a brother. Now let me ask you something. What happens to the institution of slavery if you begin to treat the slave as your brother? It crumbles. It crumbles. You, 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 can't, you can't continue to mistreat someone who's your brother. And so Paul roots the ethical requirement of the good news in the gospel. Jesus has reconciled the runaway slave and the slave owner together by his blood. They're equals. They're brothers. They're now in Christ together, called to care for each other as family. That's how Paul deals with the ethical issue. Or think about marriage in Ephesians 5. Paul doesn't just say to husbands, husbands, you need to love your wives. And wives, you need, to, you need to love your husbands. No, he does something more powerful than that. He tethers it to the gospel. He says, husbands, you need to love your wives the way Christ loves the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He laid down his life. Wives, you need to submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. The church gladly submits to the authority of Christ because Christ is a good husband. He roots the call to covenant love in the gospel. Or Galatians 2, where Peter is living as a hypocrite because he was associating himself with Gentile believers at one point and then these Judaizers come along and he disassociates himself with those Gentile believers and, and doesn't want to be associated with them. And when Paul hears about it, he calls Peter out. But you know the language that he uses? He says, Peter, your behavior is out of line with the gospel. There, there's a breakdown in your understanding of God's association with you, a sinner, and your association with these Gentiles. Something's not lining up, Peter, in how you understand the gospel of grace and how you're behaving. He calls him into alignment with the good news of Jesus. You get what I'm saying? The gospel is the source and the fuel for all true and lasting change. As Keller would say it, he would say the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. We are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. I think many Christians get this confused. They think the gospel is the message that gets them out of hell that the gospel is a message for your eternal life, but not necessarily for the life here and now. And so what they do is they go, I believe in the gospel to get me saved, and then they default to, to moralism and behavior modification for their sanctification. Well, I just need to do better, and I need to try harder. In reality, all of our problems in life come from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. Every sin struggle is an issue of not believing the gospel, not being aligned with the gospel, which means growth happens by the gospel coming more and more fully in our lives. We have to bring the gospel to our struggles and our doubts. Now, how do we do this? I'm, I'm landing the plane. I know I'm talking a lot this morning. How do we do this? How, how do we bring the gospel to bear in our lives? Ephesians 4.15, the apostle Paul is, is talking to the Ephesian believers. And he says this. 
He says, speaking the truth in love, let us grow up in every way into Christ. The way that we are sanctified, the way that we grow up into Christ, the way that we become more and more like Jesus, he says, is by speaking the truth in love to one another. In verse 21, Paul clarifies what that truth is, or better stated, who that truth is. He says the truth is in him. The truth is in Jesus. So the way that we speak the truth in love to one another is actually speaking Jesus to one another. We grow in Christ by speaking Christ to one another. We, we grow in the gospel by bringing the gospel to bear in each other's lives. We, we help each other see who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and bring that to whatever challenge we're facing. And so we have to discover how the person and work of Jesus address the problem we're facing and then receive that reality by faith, seeing Jesus as better and more beautiful than the sin or the struggle that we're challenged with. And this actually is what empowers us to live differently. And don't miss it. We do this together. We do this together. In vulnerability, we lay our lives bare before one another and we invite a brother or a sister to help us find Jesus in whatever situation we're facing. This idea of, of devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching is really this idea that we bring the scriptures to bear in each other's lives because we're for each other, because we're in this thing together. That's why you can't do it alone. You can't do it by yourself. You're like, I got my inductive Bible study. It's not enough. We all have blind spots. We need each other to gospel one another. We don't just do better and try harder. We look to Jesus together, who is the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Pray with me.